10. We'll open up in your Bibles to Ephesians 4. So we've been in a series on holiness, pursuit of holiness, the idea of sanctification, growing, changing, becoming more like Jesus Christ. That is the uh, theme of the last few weeks. That's what we've been talking about and discussing. And I wonder if it's been a little bit more on the abstract side of things, maybe a little bit more uh, a theory, um, your understanding of, of principles, and the practical might be a little bit difficult. You know, what do I do? I want to kill sin. I want to grow in holiness. Well, you're here this morning, and Lord willing, this will begin to land the plane a little bit to help us understand some of the more practical things we do as we pursue holiness and as we grow in the Lord. Um, the question to begin this, this morning is, is this. Can you change? Uh, that, that might be simple for you to, to think through and answer that question. But, but really... Do you think that you can change? Or, or do you think that change is impossible? Uh, your marriage has become a boxing ring. Can you change? Your fleshly desires are spiraling out of control. You hate it. It scares you. You want to change. But can you change? Uh, you've wrapped yourself up in a web of lies. And your life is more and more becoming detached from reality, can you change? You live each day with a crippling fear of man, constant thoughts of pleasing the people around you, wondering what they think about you. Can you change? Become bold and fearless and confident in the Lord? You're closed off from people. You don't let anyone really into your life. Can you get past that? Open up. Invite people in to help you grow. You succumb again and again to fear and anxiety and worry such that it dominates your thinking and your relationships. Can you change? Can you get into the spot where you feel peace in trusting the Lord? Is, is change possible? And I ask all these questions because I think, in theory, most of us would say, yes, change is possible. Hope is, is real. We, we can change. And yet, sometimes, practically, we don't really act as if it's true. Or we get caught up in the way of thinking that we're just this way. We will always be this way. Things are never going to change. Things will never get better. My relationships will never get better. I will always struggle with this thing. I will always face this temptation. And I will always give in to it. I can't beat it. It's impossible for me. And there is sometimes amongst Christians this, this undercurrent. It's not always surface, but this undercurrent current of discouragement, fear, confusion. I, I thought that, you know, I'm supposed to come, become spiritually mature, but man, I just don't seem to make any progress. 
And so we've been talking about that. So we've been talking about the idea of, of change, holiness, sanctification, the idea of changing to become more like Jesus Christ, changing to become more uh, as God called us to be, more holy as God is holy. This is what we've been really dealing with, this process of, of growth along the way. I try to use some illustrations that help us uh, kind of categorize the types of people we're, we're talking about. A, a couple weeks ago, we talked about that person who, who prayed some prayer when he was a kid and asked Jesus into his heart when he was little, and then eventually grew to love sin and wanted to pursue sin and basically abandoned God and abandoned Christianity. But he still thought that if, you know, it was true that the Bible, what the Bible says about salvation, that, you know, God would save him in the end because he prayed some prayer when he was a kid. Remember that one. Last week, we, we talked about that person that was hoping to grow, really wanted to grow, went to church, eager to take notes, and heard this sermon, and then at the end, it was given this quote that he wrote down and thought that maybe this is the key. This is the key. This is what I need. That quote was, just let go and let God. And he thought about it, and the more he thought about it, the more he realized this is empty. It did not provide the help he needed. And this morning, I want to invite you to think about another person. This is, this is an imaginary person. I'm not going to try to make up a name for him. I, when I do that, I, I mess it up. But uh, we're just going to imagine a person in your mind. He's new to the Lord, and the realities of the gospel are just like fireworks right now in his life. He's just thrilled by it. He's come from a, a past that's been kind of dirty, and now he's cleaned his life up by the grace of God. He's embracing the gospel, and, and let's say he's talking to you, and he's opening up to you, and, and he's talking about this joy that he's experiencing, and I'm just going to read to you just what he might say in a situation like that. I want you to listen closely and wonder if there's anything that you would identify in this is worthy of correction. So he comes to you, and he says, Oh man, I'm a spiritual failure, but praise God, Jesus came to save spiritual failures like me. I can't obey God's commands for even one nanosecond. I never truly love God with all my heart or my neighbor as myself. Even my righteous deeds are like filthy rags. And if you could see my heart, you'd see that my sins are as bad as anyone else's or even worse. I'm a spiritual screw-up through and through, unfaithful to my faithful God. But the good news is God has saved me because of Christ's death and resurrection. I am his adopted child, forgiven and cleansed. Nothing I ever do can make God love me any more or any less than he already loves me in Christ. And even though I continue to sin, I can never disappoint my heavenly Father. For he looks at me and he sees the righteousness of his beloved Son. What unspeakably good news. Now, if that person were talking to me, let me tell you what I'd do first. I would celebrate. I would celebrate that this young person is coming to understand the beauty of the righteousness of Christ being freely given to him by faith, that he does not have to earn his way to God, that, that he can accept the gospel. And by faith alone, apart from any of the works he's done, he can be received and accepted and forgiven by God. But... There would be some of those phrases, some sentences that he spoke that I would tuck away in my mind because they would be still something he's not quite thought through all the way biblically. And it is, I think, something that many of us need to continually be thinking through. And it revolves around how he thinks about his own growth and sanctification. 
One of the red flags, and probably the first one, would be this statement. I wonder if you caught it. He said, I cannot obey God's commands for one nanosecond. Humble? Perhaps there's a genuine humility that has caused him to say that. But true? Is it true that believers cannot obey God? Is it true that believers are unable to ever live holy lives? Is that true? Sounds very humble. It's stuff like this that we say a lot. But one of my responses to this person, if they were to speak this way, would be to affirm the freeness of the gospel, the completeness of the gospel, the eternality of the gospel, that once it's yours, it's yours forever, that you're justified on the righteousness of Christ that cannot change, and so you have an everlasting righteousness in Christ. But I would gently respond saying something like this, brother, listen, you actually can be holy. That you actually can obey God. Oh, or maybe not perfectly, like Jesus, you're not him, but obedience is possible. That holiness is possible. It's not out of reach. Righteousness is possible. You can live a Christian life. For those of us who cherish the gospel, I hope that's all of us here, those of us who are gospel-centered, regularly coming back to the gospel and reminding ourselves of the finished work of Christ and understanding that it is only through Christ and Christ alone that we can be reconciled to God. Those of us who really do believe in the depravity of our own hearts, the sinfulness and the wickedness that resides even as believers, the indwelling sin, those of us who understand these things uh, sometimes can forget that obedience actually is possible. It's possible. You say, what do you mean, Eric? Well, let's think back of what we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks. I want to point out three things that are just, just very quick by way of uh, review. Number one, holiness is the point of redemption. You remember that from Ephesians chapter 1? Paul writes, even as God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He, he redeems us and calls us to a holy calling that we might be able to live holy lives Secondly, holiness is required. Holiness is required. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. He's talking about a a holiness that is practical, that shows up in your life. He's not talking about the imputed righteousness of Christ that doesn't have to be striven for. He's talking about the practical outworking of our faith. And third, not only is holiness required by God, holiness is possible. Romans 6.14, if you have any questions, by the way, of the possibility of your own holiness and growth and sanctification, read and look closely at Romans 6. Verse 14 says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. So sin is not your master. Sin doesn't dominate you anymore. So you are redeemed for holiness. Holiness is required by God of you. And at the same time, because of the power of Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, He actually then enables you 
to be holy, to walk in holiness, to be obedient, which is why Jesus then, as we've been thinking about in Mark, can tell His disciples to chop off their hand or gouge out their eye if it causes them to sin. You can be holy. It is not true that holiness is impossible. Perfection in this life is impossible. But if you read the Bible, if you read the New Testament and the Old Testament, you will find again and again people that God calls holy, upright, blameless. Job, for example. A blameless and upright man. Was he perfect? Of course not. But by God's standard, God says he is a holy man. And it is possible for you, Christian, to live a holy life. Now, if you're saying here, man, it doesn't feel possible. Again, I'm not talking perfection. I will say this. There are a lot of Christians that are trying to grow into holiness by using human methods. And so it can feel pretty hopeless if you're using human methods. Many people are trying to be sanctified, not by the methods that God has given us in His Word, but by their own attempts, their own ways of thinking, even, even kind of Christianized ways. I, if I do this, and if I try this, and if I do that, then I can become holy. And ignoring, perhaps, what God has said about how we can become holy. And so the, the, the starting point of our message this morning is this. I want you to know that there is hope. For you to change. I want you to know and feel it in your bones that there is hope that you can grow. That your sins that you've struggled with, you don't have to struggle with forever. That the issues you've dealt with, they don't have to remain forever. That yes, you will always battle sin in this life, but there is a possibility of growth, of change, of victory because of Christ. And we need to look at God's Word to know how we are to pursue holiness. And so we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4. It's beautiful. I love in Scripture when we can look at a passage that it's so clear. It's so clear. There is, church, there is a surefire way to grow uh, because it's given to us in Scripture. It's not hidden from anyone. It's not a secret. Anytime you, you buy a book that has the secret of spiritual growth, just don't buy it. Just, just pass by. It's no secret. There's no hidden thing here that, you, that I, and I, I discovered something, guys, and I'm going to let you in on the secret. It's not like that. It's all throughout the Bible if we're willing to look and study and pay attention. And here's what I hope. Here's what I hope as a result of this morning's study looking at Ephesians chapter 4. Um, One of the things we pray about, I've been praying a lot for for you all, is that our church becomes a church that counsels one another, that that you you know one another and you can counsel one another, that you can feed one another the truth, that you can teach and admonish and encourage and exhort one another, and that when there's sticky, hard, complex situations, you know how to walk with your brother or walk with your sister through those things. And if you pay attention this morning, you're going to get a tool in your toolbox to be able to do that. I hope the principles we talk about this morning become so common at Grace Rancho, so obvious. These are things like in our back pocket we can pull out and use to help one another when occasion requires. I hope you'll see the relevance of this in your own life and then take it and then give it to those who also need help. So this is one of those messages 
that I am praying equips you for the work of ministry. It helps you overcome your own issues. It helps you grow in holiness. And it helps you become more able to help those around you. Let's read Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to look at verse 17. And we're going to go down to verse 24. Paul writes, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned in, you learned Christ. Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. He describes in verses 17 to 19 the way that we live, the way that the Ephesians lived prior to their coming to Christ. It's a dark description. It it is paralleled in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, where Paul describes what it is like to be dead in your trespasses and sins. The Gentiles are those outside of Christ. These, These people who are not the people of God, how are they described? They are futile in their mind. They're darkened in their understanding. They're alienated, that is cut off from the life of God because of this ignorance. They don't know Him. They don't know Him. They don't know His truth. They don't know His gospel. They don't know His Son. They have ignorance. Why? Because of the hardness of their heart. And in this, verse 19, they have become calloused. They have given themselves then up to sensuality, to greed, to every kind of impurity. This is the way that the unbelieving mind is. This is the way that it is trapped that the people who are not yet in Christ, they do not live for God, they don't care about His glory, they don't care about His honor, they more are, are more concerned with their own lives, uh, their own accomplishments, the things that they're doing. And we won't be able to go into detail of all the things that you find in those verses about what kind of problems the unbeliever finds himself in What we do want to focus on is that transition part right there in verse 20. In the following verses that describe the new life that the believer has. Look at verse 20. But that is not. So that old lifestyle that you lived, that is not the way you learned Christ. We're going to give, for this sermon, four ingredients for biblical change. Four ingredients that you need to know and have and and implement to change biblically. If you do these things, you will change. Uh, On the authority of God's word, this is what God is telling us to do. If you implement these things, if you put these in your life, if you do these things, this results in biblical sanctification. And I want to start with the first ingredient, looking at that verse 20 when he says, That is not the way you learned Christ. He's pointing to the reality that those who know Christ no longer live that old way. 
You learn Christ. You don't live that way anymore. Here's first ingredient for biblical change. It is this, learn Jesus Christ. True change, real change, biblical change is not centered on a system, not centered on a process, not centered on a checklist. It's not any number of steps. It is built on a person, Jesus Christ. Your hope is not developing a technique, and it's not following a ritual. It is built on the death-defying, risen from the dead, Jesus Christ, Lord of all, the divine Son of God. Your hope is a person, and that ought to encourage you because it is saying the implication of that truth is that hope ultimately is not in yourself. Turn from yourself. Turn from looking within if you want to change. You cannot change by looking within. Hope comes to us in a person, in the incarnate Son of God, and His name is Jesus. I want you to look at the interesting grammar in verse 20. Look at what he does. He says, that is not the way you learned Christ. There's a word there that you would probably put if you were saying this, if you were writing this letter. If you were writing Ephesians, you would probably say, but that is not the way you learned about Christ. Normally, if you're talking about someone you know, you talk about learning about them. In fact, the Greek, the, the scholars say that this is a little bit of a grammatical anomaly, that the way he's presenting this is is not according to the normal rules of grammar, the normal method of talking about a person. If you're talking about a person, normally you would use that word about. This is not the way you learned about Christ. But Paul, very intentionally here, is pulling out something more significant. He's talking about learning Christ himself. And when you actually pause to think about the difference, you can see that it's pretty significant. Is there a difference between learning about Jesus and learning Jesus? Is there a difference between learning about your spouse or learning your spouse? Learning about God or learning God? If you've played the piano, you know that there's a significant difference between learning about the piano and learning the piano. One is theory, one is facts. You can learn all about a piano and become no better at playing the piano. There's a completely different thing when you're actually learning the instrument itself a more intimate connection with the instrument. You're actually putting into practice all the facts that you know. He is talking about not mere head knowledge. He's talking about relational closeness. Learning Christ. Learning who He is. Growing acquainted with the person of Christ. Beyond the doctrines. Yes, you need the doctrines because you've got to have the right Jesus. You don't have the right doctrines. You don't have the right Jesus. But going beyond just facts in a systematic theology book and going deeper to have a relationship with the living Christ, this is what he's talking about. You have to learn Christ. And if you've learned Christ, you don't live the same way that you lived in the past. So here, how do you learn learn Christ? It basically means filling up your mind, loading your mind with the glorious truths of who Jesus is is. Let me give you a few of them that you can be loading up your mind. You can jot these down and reflect on these throughout the week. It might help us learn Christ. Number one, you could learn His provision. Jesus has everything you lack. 
Jesus is everything you need. You cannot change for the better on your own. You can't conquer your bad temper. You can't master your lust. You cannot increase your love. You cannot increase your generosity. You might want to do all those things, but you can't. But Jesus can. He has all that you need in terms of providing for you the power to change. And so we start by saying, I'm a weak creature. I'm as unstable as water. I cannot grow. My corruption is too deep. My problems are too ingrained. My sins are too ingrown. Uh, My soul is like a desert. My heart is hard. I cannot apprehend the glory of Christ. I think wrongly about too many things. I am not wise enough to figure out how I ought to live. And then you say, but Christ has provided for me. Although all that I've said about myself is true, I can lift up my head in hope and confidence because Jesus is my provider. He has fullness of grace for me. He has a fullness of a loving heart that He is given to me. He has opened up Himself to me. He can slay all my sins. He can defeat all my enemies. He can mature me. He can grow me. He can make my barren life bear much fruit. He is a provider for me. If you come into spiritual change and growth trying to do it on your own and assuming that if I do this and add this to my life and put this in my life and you start there, that might be a good place to to finish, but if you start there without beginning, with apprehending the glory of Christ, you will fizzle out. Learn what kind of provision that Christ offers you. Second, expect His power. Expect freedom from the sins that plague you. Expect growth to occur as you look to Christ. You know, what is expectation other than belief? You know, isn't expectation just kind of aggressive faith? Like, I believe this. I, I believe this is going to happen. And I think there are far too many of us that when we think about the sins, sins we struggle with, the issues we face, the areas we want to grow, uh, we, we, we know that Christ can, but we have very little faith He will. We have, we have zero expectations. We just don't assume that He can do it. We hope He will. But I think we ought to believe the promises of God. That when we come to Him, we should come to Him with expectation. In fact, the very beginning of you overcoming that sin that constantly plagues you is to believe deep in your bones to say, Jesus will help. He will help me. He will not turn me away. I can go to Him. And the moment you really start embracing by faith the promises that He's made is the same moment you actually start making progress. Learn His provision. Expect His power. Third, consider His mercy. Do you think He'd turn away from you if you're feeling weak? Do you think He'd hold you at arm's distance because you struggle? (laughs) Or do you not know that He's a great high priest who is sympathetic with you? That He has suffered in every way? That He was tempted in every way and yet He did not sin? He did not give in to the temptation. He knows what it is to be in pain. He knows what it is to agony. And so he can sympathize with those who are weak. 
The Bible does not teach that your weakness is repulsive to Christ. The Bible does not say that your temptations move him away from you. The Bible teaches that your weakness, your temptation draws him to you, child of God. It draws him to you to be an ever-present help in your time of need. So you can come to him with confidence and assurance. He is merciful to you. Consider that he wants to help you, weak sinner. Consider that He loves to show mercy if you're tempted. He is able to provide all you lack. He is powerful so you can expect change. And He is merciful to the undeserving. You don't need to wait till you've done something deserving to get His help. That would be anti-gospel, anti-Christ. You come with your filth. You come undeserving. You come to Him recognizing He is a merciful Savior. Fourth, you consider His faithfulness. You know, Jesus has made promises to you. That Jesus has spoken promises that he will not break. You think Jesus will break a promise that he's made to you? That he has provided to provide salvation? He has promised to provide salvation to everyone who calls upon his name, turning and trusting in him and him alone for their salvation? You think he'll break that promise if you come to him this morning? You think he'll break that promise? You know, the Bible says that he will provide a way of escape for every temptation we face. You think he'll break that promise? He won't break that promise. He will provide for you. You know, he says that he will promise to be at work in you until the day you stand before God. That he will never leave you or forsake you. You know, he's made these promises to you. Do you believe that he is faithful? Do you believe he will keep those promises? The answer is yes. How much hope is there when we just keep looking to Christ? Well, what else can we see? Jesus is the diamond. We keep turning around in every angle. We see a new glory. Well, here's another thing we could remember when we think about Christ. Remember his death? That on the cross he removed from you all of your sins? They were put on the cross. They were paid for there. They were punished by God so that you don't need to pay for your own sin. And do you know what else happened at the cross? The Bible says that all those who are in Christ, every Christian here, you were crucified there as well. That the old self died. That the old self that was enslaved to sin has been set free because of the death of Christ and sin no longer has dominion or authority over you. You can change because you have been set free because Christ died to set you free from your sin. And let's keep looking at Christ. Let's look at His resurrection. Did he conquer death? Did he conquer sin? Is he alive right now? Is he king of the universe? Is he able to provide help in time of need? Does he ever advocate for you, church? He does. Is he your intercessor, always praying for you every moment of every day? He does. Has he abandoned you? No. All the foundation of biblical change starts here in Jesus Christ, who gives you everything you need, who can change you, who's willing to change you, who's merciful, who's faithful. He has conquered death. He's alive right now. You come to Him now. Now, if you're not yet saved, Jesus now, right now invites you to enjoy the salvation He has for all those who trust in Him. And guess what? If you are saved, look again to Christ. And look again to Christ tomorrow morning. And to overcome the sin that you're facing and the temptations you fear will overtake you, look at Him every day this week. Reflect on these things. Learn Him. Learn Jesus Christ. 
Become acquainted with Him. As you would become acquainted with a friend. With someone you admire. In, in 2008, a scholar by the name of G.K. Beale published a book titled, We Become What We Worship. We Become What We Worship. I think the title itself is a profound reality. What's perhaps more profound is the fact that that concept is all throughout the entire Bible. That if you worship statues that are dumb, you become dumb. If you worship false gods, you become false. The psalmist says this in Psalm 115. Now that which you behold, that which you admire, that which you stare at, that which you treasure, that which you cherish, that which you worship is shaping you. It's been said, you become what you behold. And so what dominates your mind, what's captured your heart, is what you are gradually becoming. And so the beginning again, let me say it again, if you want to become like Jesus Christ, overcoming sin and temptation, where do you begin? You begin by... You stare at the Son of God. You let Him become a part of your life. You feed off the realities of who He is. This idea is 2 Corinthians 3.18. It's right there. Uh, Paul writes, And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. As you behold the glory of the Lord, you become like the Lord. As you behold the glory of Christ, you grow in Christ-likeness. As you behold holiness, you become more holy. And if you're beholding trivialities all day, what will that make you? Trivial. If you behold things that are unimportant all day, and those are the things that just got you to become unimportant, you become unable to understand what is important. You flitter your life away, giving in to all kinds of meaningless activity. And so all, all growth starts with Jesus. Looking at Him, trusting Him, believing Him. And so I ask you, do you know Him? Really, though, do you know Jesus? Not can you recite truths and facts about Him. That doesn't mean you know Him. Do you commune with Him? Do you have fellowship with the Son of God? Do you talk with Him in your prayer? Do you listen to Him in His Word? Do you know Christ? Are you growing in acquaintance with Him? It all starts there. In fact, you could say that the rest of our points, the next three, all flow out of point number one. If you don't have point number one, points two, three, and four are meaningless. Let's look at our second ingredient here for biblical change. You must put off your old self. Look at verse 22. Verse 21, assuming you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Put off your old self. He's using here a metaphor of clothing. 
uh, you can envision a jacket. Take off the jacket. It's an old jacket. It's a filthy jacket. That's not your jacket anymore. Throw it to the side. Don't do it anymore. You could think of, remember the moment when Jesus uh, called Lazarus from the dead. This is a good analogy to get the image in your mind of what he means here. Imagine you're there at the, the graveside. Lazarus has been dead for a number of days. Jesus speaks into the tomb and he says, Lazarus, come forth. And what happens right there? His, his brain starts going again. His heart starts beating again. His body kind of recomposes itself. But he gets up and he stands up. What's he wearing? He's wearing old, filthy grave clothes. He's wearing the, the same filthy thing he died in. What does he do? You've got to get that off of you, Lazarus. That's not who you are. You're not dead anymore. You don't need to wear that anymore. And that is a parallel to what Paul is saying here. You have been given new life in Christ. You have died to your old self. You were crucified with Christ. And so now, as a Christian, you need to take off the grave clothes. You need to stop acting like that's who you are. That's not who you are anymore. You need to understand you have a new identity. He talks about that old self. Look at what it says. Which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. He's, he's talking about these, these ways of thinking, ways of feeling, ways of wanting that are corrupt, that are attached to our old way of life. He's saying, that stuff, you just got to get it off of you. You have a new identity. You are alive. You don't live that way anymore. Take that stuff off. Think differently. Act differently. Feel differently. Because you are new. In other words, be who you are. You're alive now. Start acting like somebody who's alive. Don't walk around in the grave clothes of a dead man. Because you're not a dead man anymore. Wake up. And there's some Christians who don't understand the power of their new identity. They, 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 they think, man, this is just who I am. I'm just stuck in this sin. I'm just stuck in this temptation. I'm always going to be this way. And here Paul is saying, you, that is your old self. You, you have a new identity now. You have a new self. And you've got to start getting rid of that old stuff. You are not, listen, church, you're struggling with a sin. I hope you are. That's a sign of life. You're going through an issue. There's temptation you face. We all do. How are you handling that? Do you realize that you are not your sin? You are not defined by your struggle. You are not defined by your past. That's not who you are. Those things are part of your story, but that's not who you are. You have a new identity that is holy in Christ, made righteous in Christ, beloved in Christ, cleansed, new. You have a new identity and all that old stuff is not you. You don't have to do that stuff anymore. You realize this? And so many of us, we try to fight our sin by just in our own strength. It's just, okay, I'm going to try to stop, but we, we still think that's just who we are. It's just, I'm always going to be this way. The objective reality is that sin no longer has authority over you. Let that sink in. You don't have to sin. You don't have to give in to that temptation. You don't have to always be giving in to the temptations that come over you. 
and demand allegiance. You can imagine this way. Imagine you're a slave of a cruel master for many, many years. From childhood, you've been the slave of this master who whips you and beats you and demands obedience constantly. And you've only ever known following this cruel master and imagine a good master comes. And he says, I'm going to buy this slave from you and this slave will become my own. And the moment that purchase happens, this slave is now part of this new master's household. And this new master treats him not like a slave, but like a son. This new master doesn't beat him, but helps him and loves him and cherishes him. But imagine that old master comes back and says, Oh, I know that you've been purchased, but listen, you're mine still. You're, you're, you're mine. You're going to give in to my temptation still. You're going to do what I want you to do. So many of us immediately go back to who we once were and we go, I can't give in. I can't withstand this temptation. I can't do anything about it. We give right in because we have forgotten our identity. We have forgotten who owns us. We have forgotten that in Christ we can say no to sin. We don't have to fall into the temptations that sin brings us anymore in Christ. I like what what G.K. Chesterton said about this theme. He says, if a rhinoceros were to enter this right now, there's no denying that he would have great power here. But I should be the first to rise up and assure him that he has no authority whatsoever. Sin, does it feel powerful? Yeah, it does. Does it have any authority over you? No, it doesn't, Christian. Don't give in. Don't let it think. Don't, don't think that you have to give in. That sin temptation has no authority over you anymore. You can say no. Believe it. And you need to say no, remembering that this is not who I am. I am not this person. I remember hearing a story of, I was reading it as an illustration in the book. I thought it was a good one that I'd share with you young man struggling with sexual sin, just feeling that he can never overcome it. He's completely uh, given into it. And yet now he's beginning to get serious about overcoming this sin. And he's been talking to his pastor. He's been, he's been getting good and wise counsel from his pastor. And one of the pieces of advice was that if, if this temptation to sin is in his life again, he needs to call the pastor immediately and and the pastor would help him fight his own temptation and so one night this is exactly what's happening the young man calls the pastor says i'm feeling just tempted to just do the the things i've always done to go back and live the way i've always lived i'm tempted to go back and to commit the same sins i've always committed the pastor said what i think is a very very wise piece of counsel he said no you're not going to go do those things because that's not who you are. That's not who you are anymore. That's not you. In other words, he helped the young man fight sin by grounding him in a new identity. That's not who you are. You don't do that when you're new in Christ. And this young man was able to attain victory and resist the temptation because, yes, you're right, I am new. I can pull it off. I can resist it. How many 
How often do we give in to temptation, to anger, or to discouragement, or to lust, or to laziness because we've forgotten who we are? We think we got to do it. And the rhinoceros of temptation comes in and we go, wow, that's powerful, I can't resist that. And we don't rise up and say, you have no authority over me. I am not who you think I am. I'm a child of God. God is my Father. Heaven is my home. I've been made new. I don't have to do this stuff. And you flee. You flee with all your heart. And let's take this back to last week's message, what Jesus was teaching in Mark chapter 9. What do you do when the temptation starts to rise in? What are you supposed to do? According to Jesus, you get violent. You make war. You cut off hands or eyes or feet. All you can do to put away the thing that's tempting you. When anger begins to boil in your heart, do you justify it and excuse it? Or do you make war? When lust begins to creep in in the mind, do you justify it? Do you hide it? Or do you go to war? Do you say, this is not who I am. I'm putting this off. I am not dominated by this stuff any more. Sin is a defeated foe. The power it holds on you is the power you let it hold on you. Because you are free from sin's dominion. Christian. Here's a third for biblical change. Right here in the text. Right after verse 22, telling us to put off the old self. We're going to put it off. We're going to put it off like taking off the grave clothes, which belongs to your former man of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Look at verse 23. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. What he's talking about here, the spirit of your mind, the mind refers to the control center of the person. Your mind, how you think, how you feel, how you evaluate, is like a control center for all of your life. And he's saying here that what needs to happen as we're putting off the old self is we need to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. That means deep down, the most deep part of who you are needs to change. It needs to be renewed. In other words, the the change, yes, there are external things to be done, but fundamentally there needs to be change that's happening on the inside in the spirit of your mind or else it's not going to be lasting follow? It's not going to be lasting change if you don't address the spirit of your mind. Uh, in, in other words, consider this. Is all change good change? No. Is it possible to change in a way that looks good socially and creates more social acceptance, but brings you further from God? Is that possible? Let me give you an example. Imagine a drunkard living his life to fill his belly, indulging in every kind of fleshly pleasure, living for himself, gets picked up by a Pharisee. The Pharisee teaches him about God's law. The Pharisee teaches him how to rigidly follow that law. The Pharisee teaches them socially acceptable lifestyles. The Pharisee helps him 
uh, learn new discipline. The Pharisee helps him learn respectability. The Pharisee helps this man save his marriage and win the respect of his kids. And he earns a high position in the religious world. And the world might say, what a wonderful change. And God would see it and say he's worse off than when he began. Why? Because he was not changed in the spirit of his mind. He was not changed on the inside out. He traded unrighteousness for self-righteousness. That is often how Christians are trying to sanctify themselves. They're trying to grow in righteousness and they grow in self-righteousness. And so what is the key? What, What is different and distinctive about Christian sanctification and just growth and discipline that the world will do? You can admire a lot of people who are not Christians for their self-discipline and their apparent growth on the outside. But what's the distinction? Here it is, is that we Christians are aiming for change that is deep, that is internal, that has to do with the way you think and the way you feel, your own affections. That's what he's getting at, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. You've got to be putting off sin, but you've got to then also be renewed By your mind, you're not just going to trade your unrighteousness for self-righteousness. How much of our growth is just external things we've added onto our lives with no internal transformation? Say, what does it mean? How do we do that? How do we we ensure that it's our our deepest part of our hearts that are being renewed and transformed? Look at the the text again. I I just want you to notice how often the mind is brought up. Uh, the, the, The Gentiles there are described as walking in the futility of their minds. Look at verse 18. They're darkened in their understanding. That's a mind word. That's a, that's a brain word. Alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance. Ignorance, another one of these words has to do with our understanding. Ignorance is us uh, being unable to understand who God is and His truth. Um, and then verse 20 he talks about the transition. What's the fundamental you know, way that we change? It's learn Christ. Another word that has to do with our understanding. Assuming that you have heard or taught in Him uh, the truth. You see how all this is talking about engaging the mind? You see that? So what does it mean to be renewed in the spirit of your mind? What does it mean to change from the deep part of who we are? It's this. It's what Hans read when we read John 17 this morning. In verse 17, when Jesus prayed, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. How do we change? Deep down in our bones, how do we change? There's so many wrong answers for this. Mystical answers, provide you rituals to do. You know what it is? It's much more simple and biblical. It's this, hear the word of God in faith. You want to be renewed in the spirit of your mind? Hear and believe. Every day, hear and believe God's word. Hear it, understand it, engage it, let it fill your mind, and respond to it with faith, embrace it, rely upon it, and then live according to it. That's the expression of faith. There's not some super mystical way to to grow in Christ, to change from the inside out. It is give yourself to the Word of God, hearing and believing everything that it says. 
Build your life on the scriptures. Plant yourself like a tree by the streams of living water. I was reading this week about the Chernobyl disaster. 1986, when the nuclear power plant went bonkers and and all the radioactive stuff, toxic stuff got into the environment. And there's a forest right there and this river flowing through it. And all the trees right by that river began turning red. They called it the red forest because the toxic stuff from the radioactive power plant got out in the water. And all those trees were soaking up all the toxins. And eventually they turned some bizarre color and then all the trees died. And how many of us in our efforts to, to get through life, we're, we are trees, but we're planted by toxic waste. Like what we're soaking in is the stuff on social media, the stuff on the news, the movies in the, in the theaters, and, and all the, the wisdom of the world is just soaking in. That's what we're absorbing. We're like a tree planted by worldliness, and so we become worldly. Whereas the scriptures call us to be like a tree planted by the living streams of water. By the words of God that they soak in. They fill our hearts. They fill our minds. We relieve them by faith. And it changes us. We become healthy Christians. We become growing Christians. We become fruit-bearing Christians. If you want to be transformed deep down in, in your mind. You want to be renewed in the spirit of your mind Learn this, to read and to study and to meditate on the words of God. And as you're doing that, you're responding, saying in your heart, in your mind to God, you're saying, God, I believe this. I believe this. Help me to obey this. God, I'm embracing this. I'm going to rely upon this. Because there are so many truths that we read right over. We don't even pause to think of the glories that have just been fed to us. We read it. We don't often respond in faith to what we've just read. This is the difference. You are putting off your old self, but as you're doing that, you're being renewed. You're planting yourself in the Scriptures. You're reading with faith, understanding the the authorial intent of the Scripture and believing it and applying it. Do you read your Bible? Do you study it to know it? Do you meditate on the Word of God? Do you believe it? We all say we do. Do you believe it? Do you embrace it as life for you to feed your soul? What is your relationship to the Word of God? Is it renewing the spirit of your mind? And would you expect to grow even as you ignore God's method of changing us from the inside out? Here's the last ingredient. We've got to learn Christ. That's number one. We've got to put off the old self knowing who we are. We've got to be renewed in the spirit of our minds, the deepest part of who we are. And lastly, you have to put on the new self. You've got to put on the new self. Verse 24, put on the new self. 
created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Put on who you actually are. It's the clothing analogy again. Take off the grave clothes, you put on clothes for the living. Uh, you, you stop acting like the unbeliever you once were. You start acting, uh, working hard to act like the believer God says you now are. By the way, is this easy and simple? <laughs> so many of us think that sanctification should happen like immediately. Like why can't I just grow to be just like Jesus tomorrow? Like I really want to. And if I want it bad enough, shouldn't I be able to just do it? Do you think that that, that resisting temptation is easy? And overcoming sin habits is quick? Like, no, it's a lifetime. It is possible. It is a gift through us that we can have. We can be holy, but it does not mean it's just some walk in the park to put off sin, to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and to put on the new self is work. And what what, what point we need to, to, as we kind of wrap up here, as we're looking at this fourth point, that you've got to put on, you've got to remember, biblically speaking, this is where many of us go wrong, biblically speaking, you cannot break a habit. Think this one through. The Bible doesn't talk about breaking habits. The Bible doesn't teach us that we need to break bad habits. It is impossible for you to break your bad habits. Let me say that to you. It is impossible for you to break your bad habits. The only way to do it biblically is to replace them. You must replace your bad habits. Because a removal of sin without a replacement of righteousness, will be a repeat of sin. If you try to remove it and you don't replace it with anything righteous, you'll repeat it all over again. And so many Christians are stuck in the same patterns of sin because they never replace their sin patterns with righteousness patterns. They don't put on anything. They're just taking off the grave clothes. They don't have anything else to put on. That's not where you want to be. You want to be putting on righteousness. Actively putting on righteousness. You remove Sin by replacing sin. You cannot break the habit. You must replace the habit. Think of a, if I were to hold up a water bottle here that's completely empty and I were to say to you, all right, let's think of a way to get the air out of this bottle. We've got to think of a way to get the air out of this bottle. And one of you raises your hand and says, all right, I, I'm an engineer. I've got this all figured out. I made this elaborate pump. And we're going to attach this thing here and then da 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 And we're going to pump out the air and gradually all the air will be Removed from the bottle. And we'll all go, wow. And then some of you smart, smarty pants will, will walk up and say, I got a better way. Let's just fill it up with water. And as you fill it up with water, suddenly there's no more air in it. Duh. And here we are as Christians trying to think of these elaborate methods for overcoming sin. And here's the biblical method. Put off the old stuff, change your mind about it, and replace the bad habits with good habits. With righteousness, with holiness, the directions that God gives you in His Word. In fact, this is exactly what Paul goes on to show you in the text. Look at, look down your Bible. Verse 25. Therefore, this is verse 25. He just described how to do it. Therefore, having put away falsehood, that's put off. 
Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. That's put on. For we are members of one another. That's the thing you need to understand. That's the renewing of the mind that enables you to do it. Verse 26. Here's another one. Be angry and do not sin. Okay? Don't, don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Okay? That's a, that's a good habit. You know, to resolve things quickly. Verse 27. And give no opportunity for the devil. That's the thing that you need to rethink. You know, you, you can't overcome sin. If you're thinking wrongly, if you think rightly about anger, you understand that it's a tool for the devil. Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal. Okay, that's the put off, but rather let him labor. Okay, that's the put on. Doing honest work with his own hands, more put on. Why? So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. More new ways to think through life. And if you were to read through the rest of that chapter of Ephesians, you would find the same principle working out, put off, put on, and here's what you need to think about. Put off, put on, and here's how you're renewed in your mind. Go read the rest of that, but I would challenge you today as we wrap up this. You all, every single one of us, have issues we need to put off, areas we need to rethink biblically about something, and then put on a new habit of righteousness. We all have that. If you're married, ask your spouse. They'll help you figure out what that thing is that you need to put off and what that thing is you need to put on. And help each other come understand. Here's, here's what we got to understand is that God has made holiness our birthright. Imagine yourself with Joshua about to enter the promised land. And you're going and you're in the back and you're going, okay, there's all kinds of bad guys in here and we got to go in and fight it. We've got to go in and fight and establish. We've got to take this land. God has said, that's your land, Israel. Go in and fight the people who are inhabiting the land because that land is your land, and I'm going to give you victory, and I'm going to give you the land. You've got to trust me, though. you still got to go fight the battle. Is that going to be an easy thing to do? It's going to be hard. You've got to walk by faith. You've got to trust the Lord to bring you victory. But do you still have to fight? Yeah, you've got to fight. You, you still got to go in the land. you got to fight. And this is the paradigm for holiness. God has said, you are holy. Your sins are defeated foes. I am going to give you victory. Holiness is your birthright. Now go to war, and I promise you victory when you go to war. I promise you that you will become holy by degrees over the time of your life, that you will become more Christ-like. And so many of us are going, oh, I don't know if I can. I don't know if I should. I don't. It's hard. Yeah, it is hard. But we are called to be holy. He has made us holy. Now we can pursue holiness. My prayer is that if you're here at Grace Rancho and you're not pursuing holiness, it'll get awkward fast because it is so normal for us to pursue holiness with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So how are you going to learn Christ? What needs to be put off? How does your thinking need to change? And what do you need to put on as a replacement for the things you're putting off? Discuss that this week. Think about that. Pray about that this week. And let's be a church that grows in holiness. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that holiness is a gift The imputed righteousness of Christ is a gift that we receive by faith. And upon that righteousness, we are justified. We praise you for that. But thank you also for the promise that we can be holy. 
We can overcome sin and temptation. We can become more like Jesus as we learn more about who you are, put off our old self, change our minds, and put on Christ. Help us to do that. This week, every week, all our lives, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.